to uh, be looking at Matthew chapter 13 uh, from verses 24 to verse 43. Uh, But before we do that, uh, I thought it would be uh, good to read some scripture together. Uh, A few uh, weeks ago, uh, I said about trying to learn a couple of verses from Matthew. And so it would be good if we could learn Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. So I'll put the words upon the screen. Uh, This is uh, an important verse in Matthew's Gospel. It's where uh, Peter uh, acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ. So we'll say these uh, verses together, uh, and then we'll look together at Matthew chapter 13. So let's say them together. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So if you uh, just, it's not, they're not long uh, verses, but they're really good ones uh, to memorize, just to remind us who is Jesus? He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that's our confession that we make as God's people. Well, if, you, if you've turned to Matthew 16, turn back a few pages to Matthew 13. Uh, and before we look at this passage, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your words and for how Jesus uh, speaks in parables, as we see in this passage tonight. And with the disciples, we ask that you would uh, teach us and help us to understand the meaning of these things that we can apply them to our lives and share this good news with the world around us. Amen. Well, throughout uh, Matthew 11 and 12, we've seen those different responses to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to the parables in chapter 13, uh, Jesus goes on to explain why it is that people respond in so many different ways. Why is it that we see the the attitude to Jesus that we do in the world around us? And it began uh, in chapter 13, verse 1, uh, down to 23, with the parable of the the sower. Uh, There were four soils that showed four different hearts of how people respond to the message of the kingdom. But I don't know if you noticed, um, but it's worth noticing that most of the soils mentioned in chapter 13, verses 1 to 23, are negative responses to Jesus. They're responses which were were not the response that uh, we might uh, expect or want people to make. And there's a lot of opposition to Jesus, and we see that in the world around us uh, today, don't we? Lots of people... Uh, oppose the the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and oppose the person of Jesus Christ. And if we acknowledge that that Jesus is king and we acknowledge that he rules and reigns sovereign over the whole of the universe, which we do acknowledge that, the Bible clearly teaches that, then we there, there is a case for saying that we can be somewhat surprised that he allows so much opposition to his kingdom. It's a shock, isn't it, really, to think that that we have been uh, 2,000 years since he was on earth. And throughout that time, he has been ridiculed and mocked and his people have been persecuted. What 
is going on. And it could cause us even to fall into despair. Is this really the right side to be on? Is God's kingdom really the right place to be when all around me I'm seeing so much opposition and so much difficulty uh, for me being as part, a part of this? Well, it's not only in our generation that perhaps we feel uh, that our expectations are not being met. We have wrong expectations if they're not being met. But even after Jesus had risen from the dead and before he ascended to heaven, his disciples were expecting something rather different to what they saw. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples seemed to expect that now that Jesus had risen from the dead, he would take his throne upon the earth. Listen to what they said. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus told them here in Acts that before he takes his throne, they need to be his witnesses. They were expecting something different. They were expecting Jesus to take the throne right now, to, to, for everyone else to be wiped away and for his people to be left. And maybe like the disciples in Acts chapter 1, we can be a little confused sometimes that the almighty God, who is king of the whole universe, allows us to live in a world where people are hostile to him and hostile even to us. And on the outside, at least, the, the, the evil of this world seems, doesn't it, to be overcoming the good of God's kingdom. Well, in the parables that we'll see tonight, Jesus teaches us that this is actually to be expected. But so too, and this is the really important thing to remember, is his final victory for his kingdom. We are to expect opposition and expect things to be uh, not expect to, the world to be looking like it's winning, but we're also to expect and remember his kingdom will have the final victory. And against any expectations of perhaps immediate victory, but assurance of the final one, Jesus answers a question for us in these parables. How does God's kingdom grow? But before we look at that, it might be worth ask, answering the question, what is God's kingdom? Perhaps for some of us, that might be a question that we're wondering. What is it that we mean when we say that the kingdom of God? Because it's important to know, because in all of these parables, Jesus begins them with a phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are not two different things, they're speaking of the same thing. And in one sense, the, the, our God is the Lord of all of creation. He sovereignly rules and reigns over it all. It is all his. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But when the Bible talks of the kingdom of God, it is talking about something different from the rule and reign he has over the universe. In short, the, the kingdom of God is God's people under his rule. 
And at the present time, this rule over God's people is exercised in the church who are the people of God. So as Christians, we are citizens of God's kingdom. And so in this world, we live as God's citizens, as his ambassadors. Ambassadors of his kingdom, representing Jesus, uh, our king. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, he is explaining what life is like for his people under his rule. And some of the parables talk of how that is right now, but they also point forward to what that will be like in the future. And in fact, most of the parables speak of both of those things. What life is like under his rule now, and what life will be like under his rule in the future. And as we look at these parables tonight, all of them have that double uh, layer. What life is like now, what life will be like in, his, in the future when, his, when Jesus has come and his kingdom is all that remains. And so in verse 24, when Jesus told them another parable, he continues teaching what life is like in his kingdom for his people. And the first parable uh, teaches us this. God's kingdom is in a mixed world. So look at verses 24 to verse 30 with me. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Well, this uh, parable is a story of agricultural sabotage. Uh, Roman era biological warfare, if you like. Now, we know this kind of thing went on because there were actually Roman laws that legislated against this kind of behaviour, which would have been devastating for a farmer. The enemy in the parable was stealthy, and they managed to sow weeds into the wheat field when the servants were asleep. And the weeds here are known or called darnel. And darnel is poisonous. And it gets intertwined with the wheat and it therefore makes it hard to pull them up and separate them from the wheat without damaging the wheat in the process. But here's the thing. Darnell looks incredibly similar to wheat when it first grows. So similar, in fact, that even the most experienced of farmers would not know that there was any difference at all. Now, I'm a, I am not a, a gardener or uh, anything to do with flowers. Uh, I, I buy flowers on very rare occasions, usually when they're on special offer, and often I don't even know what they are. But even the most experienced farmer in this story does not be a, cannot tell the difference between the darnel and the wheat. But much later, when the ears appear, they notice a difference. And we see that in verse 26 
when the servants recognise that there is Darnell in the field, and in verse 27 when they are surprised at it. So later on, it is noticed that there is a difference. But the real surprise isn't for uh, the servants, the real surprise is for the listener to the parable. The surprise is in verse 28. The servants say, do you want us to go and pull them up? And the response is, no. Well, you know in your garden, if you do gardening, uh, if you like your garden, you don't like weeds, do you? You go in the garden and you pull up the weeds. That's the the normal thing uh, to do. But here there's a surprise because the farmer says, no, don't pull up the weeds, but let them grow. That's unexpected. He doesn't want to to damage the wheat by pulling up the darnel that is tangled around them. And so he leaves them until the harvest time when they would be carefully pulled out and the darnel would be gathered up and burnt before the wheat is gathered into the barn. Well, later on in Matthew 13, we'll see that Jesus gives us the interpretation for this parable. But we can still, before we get to that, understand some of what Jesus means here. There is good seed and there is bad seed and they grow together. Christians and non-Christians grow together in the world. God has his people, Satan has his people. And sometimes it is very hard to distinguish between the two. But it becomes obvious over time when you see the fruit. Christians don't walk around with a big hat on saying, I'm a Christian. I mean, some some do. I mean, t-shirts are quite fashionable these days, aren't they, with Christian slogans, and that's all good. Uh, But normally, you can't look down the street and say, oh, there's a Christian, there's a Christian, there's a Christian. But when you see the lives, you see the fruit, there should be a difference. But the key point isn't even that. The key point of this parable here is that there is a delay in separation until the harvest time, when God will separate. There is a delay in the separation until the harvest time, when God will separate. And one application for us from this is the answer to the question about pulling up the weeds early. No, because we don't want to damage the wheat. It's done at harvest. Well, how is it that we can be in danger of wanting to pull up weeds early or um, distinguish or separate out Christians and non-Christians in an inappropriate way or in an inappropriate time? Well, we can pull up weeds when we prematurely judge someone as an unbeliever because perhaps they go uh, to a church that perhaps we don't like very much or uh, on things that are not essential that hold different views to what we do and we can say well they they can't possibly be a Christian because they don't have exactly the same view on these things as me that's kind of pulling up the weeds and it damages the wheat doesn't it if they're a believer pulling up the weeds can be judging someone quickly and harshly and labelling them as an unbeliever it can be thinking someone has no chance ever of coming to faith And so we don't share the message of the kingdom with them. That can be uh, true as we're giving out our leaflets, can't it? We can go round and we can think, oh, you know what, I know the people that live in that house. There's no point in giving them a leaflet. That's an example of, of 
judging early, pulling up the weeds. And it damages the wheat. It damages God's people. It damages us because there are people that therefore are not hearing the gospel that could become part of our family. But when we're judging harshly one another, that just damages each other, doesn't it? But we can also, on the other side, want to separate the wheat from the weeds before the time of harvest. By, by being Christians who want to have nothing to do with the world at all. But we are to, if we read this parable right, play our part in society. We're to be good neighbours. We're not to totally isolate ourselves from the world around us. We grow in the same field until harvest. In fact, when we try and separate ourselves from the world so much, we end up damaging the rest of the wheat by damaging our witness. We are in the world, but not of the world. We're, 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 we're to live our lives as, as Christians surrounded by unbelievers. Well, Jesus digs deeper into the harvest when he gives his interpretation later on. But before we get to that, Matthew gives us another couple of parables. Amongst all of the weeds, God's kingdom can appear so insignificant. You can look at God's kingdom uh, and you can think, well, is there any, is there any wheat there? Is, is it just, it just seems, or God's world rather, and just look at it and think it's so full of weeds. It can look like a right messy garden. You think, well, what kind of gardener is this? We can think that about God. And we can get disheartened. And we can think, well, we're such a minority in the world. We're despised and we're seen as irrelevant. Christians are out of date and even sometimes labelled as dangerous. But Jesus encourages us with the truth that God's kingdom will grow unexpectedly. First, he speaks a parable which shows the unexpected growth in size of the kingdom of heaven. Look at verses 31 to 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Well, the mustard seed was tiny. Now, scientifically, there are smaller seeds, but Jesus isn't saying here that there are no other seeds as small as the mustard seeds. He's not given a, a botany lesson, but it was a proverbial saying of the time that if something is uh, uh, small, you could say it's as small as a mustard seed and mean that it's tiny. Uh, we have a similar kind of phrase to what this uh, parable means when we say... Uh, from tiny acorns, mighty oaks grow. Similar kind of thing that's going on. The tiny mustard seed in the parable was planted in a field and it grew uh, to become a large tree. Now technically, uh, again, a tree is a bush, but because of its size, it could be uh, labelled as a tree. It's normally about seven to eight feet high, but can grow to as much as 12 to 15 feet high. And the birds can come and make a nest in it. The big point here is that there is no connection, it seems, between the size of the seed and the size of the tree after it has grown. Small beginnings, profound results. And the kingdom of God is like that. And Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like this. How? Well, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel in chapter 4, Jesus 
begins his ministry after his baptism uh, and temptation in the wilderness by saying this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And the kingdom at this point really begins with one man. It begins with Jesus. But a kingdom has to have people in it. And as Jesus calls people into his kingdom, people come and join him. He has his 12 disciples. But after he has died and risen and ascended to heaven, Acts chapter 1 and verse 15 tells us that there were 120 disciples there in the upper room. So the kingdom of God at the beginning of Acts seemed to be about the size of our church here in Pelsall. Not very big if you consider it against the whole world. And they had a mission. That, that little group of disciples, that, that, that little church, which was about the size of our church, was sent out around the world to reach the nations with the good news of Jesus. And as you read Acts, the, the kingdom of God, it grows and it grows and it grows as churches are planted all over the place. And since the end of the book of Acts, up until the present day, God's kingdom has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. More and more people have become followers of Jesus. And in fact, uh, I have read that in the 20th century, more people became Christians than in all the other centuries before it combined. And even today, people all over the world are becoming followers of Jesus in the most unexpected of places. I was reading uh, quite recently uh, about uh, the number of people that are being converted in Iran, a place where you would never expect God's kingdom to be growing, but there it is, God's kingdom. Even in, ch- in countries where the church is put underground, God's kingdom is growing. People are coming to faith. Now, over history, we know that there are times where more people come and less people come, but as a whole, over the whole world, over time, God's kingdom is growing and growing and growing. And the birds that are nesting in the trees here uh, are are an allusion to some Old Testament prophecies in Ezekiel and Daniel where trees are described as kingdoms under whose shade nations are under. So let me just give you two and I'll show them uh, up on the screen. Uh, God uh, speaks of his, his kingdom in this way in Ezekiel. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it, that is, a tree. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. That's an explanation of how God's kingdom will be. And it's true, isn't it? People from all different nations uh, come under the shade of God's kingdom. And even in our country, we, uh, we mustn't forget the fact that Uh, We're a a nation where historically many people have come to faith. But if you look at Bible times, what was our country? It was uh, just the backwater of the Roman Empire, a pagan land. No no witness for Christ at all. And yet many people have come to faith and were under the shade of these branches. But then King Nebuchadnezzar, he had a great kingdom in Babylon and had a dream about that kingdom in which there was a tree. And this is what Daniel said about his dream. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit providing for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. 
So Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was like a tree whose branches extend further and further out. And God's kingdom, in a similar way, looking back to those kind of images, is a kingdom that grows and grows and grows all over the world as his people come under his branches, under his shade. And that kingdom is going to continue to grow and to grow and to grow until this happens in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation and tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. From every uh, nation, tribe, people and language. God's kingdom is growing and growing and growing until the day when we're all before his throne, all singing in all different languages, salvation belongs to our God. So we may seem in these days like a, a tiny minority. We may look around and think that, well, are we really part of, of something that is, is going to be victorious? Well, Jesus says, yes, absolutely we are. God's kingdom gets bigger and bigger, and it's bigger than you expect, and will be seen to be bigger than you imagine. That's the parable of the mustard seed. And if the parable of the mustard seed teaches that the kingdom of heaven grows in size, uh, a similar principle is found in verse 33, when Jesus tells them still another parable. This time, likening the kingdom of God to yeast. He, said, he told them still another parable, it says. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked its way all through the dough. Well, if the mustard seed talks about size, this parable shows how the kingdom of God grows in influence. The yeast is very small. But the amount of dough is massive. It's uh, 60 pound, or um, if you, like me, use kilograms, 27 kilograms of flour. Enough to feed a whole village. And it's a small amount of yeast, but the impact is huge. And the impact is positive. It makes bread better and tastier, doesn't it? I mean, some of you may prefer flatbread. But I much think, I think, and I'm sure most people I'm sure agree with me, that freshly baked bread with, with the yeast is, is just lovely, isn't it? Who can beat the smell of freshly baked bread? And in this parable, the dough is the world and the yeast is the kingdom of God, which has been inserted by God into the world, and it influences the world for good, and that influence, that good influence grows. Well, how does this happen? Well, it's similar in a sense to the mustard seed. Jesus comes into the world as a baby. Uh, perhaps you could, in an image of the parable, a small piece of yeast inserted into the world. And his kingdom grows, as, it, as, as we've seen it doing. And so too, as God's kingdom has grown, does the influence of God's people. The primary good that's been brought about in the world is the good news about Jesus, the gospel message. And this message has spread all over the world like yeast in the bread. But the influence of Christianity is more than uh, the, the message of the gospel. 
Because as people become Christians and their lives changes and they live for God, they bring good into the world as well. And in the Roman world, Christians were influential and radically different from everybody else in their care for widows and orphans, in their dignity of women, and generally in the love they had for their neighbours. And over the centuries, that yeast has continued to influence the world in profound ways. Even our whole justice system in our own country is based on a Christian heritage, even if not all of our uh, legal system now is biblical. But generally, nations with a Christian heritage are more free than those without, and the influence of the gospel throughout the world has been massive, hasn't it? And again, when Jesus returns, he will rule over a kingdom where only his rule and reign will remain. And so at the moment, if you like, the kingdom of God is a bit like the bread in the oven. It's still, uh, the yeast is working until it's finally done and God's kingdom has finally come completely. God's kingdom will grow unexpectedly in terms of size and of influence. And we should be really encouraged by this truth, shouldn't we? As Christians, we feel the strain of living in a world that is not living for God and is often actively against him. But we can remember that we are in the only kingdom that is going to last forever. And we can be encouraged that even if God's kingdom is not growing massively in the United Kingdom today, we can be sure that across the world, God's kingdom is growing. He is at work. And so... We need to be involved in the work of God's kingdom, don't we? Through being active in the life of our church and through being active in living out our faith in the world around us. I mean, there are two uh, perhaps applications we can each uh, take from these two parables. Uh, First of all, we can uh, be involved in evangelism. God's kingdom is growing in size through his people sharing Jesus with others. And you can do that by being involved in the outreach of our own church. Even uh, delivering leaflets through doors is is an act of sharing our faith with other people. But as we speak to our family and our friends and our neighbours and our work colleagues, let's try and have conversations about our Lord Jesus Christ. So through evangelism, but also as we influence through godly living. God's kingdom grows in influence as God's people show what living in God's kingdom looks like. So let's get serious about living out our faith in the world around us. Well, these parables teach us about God's kingdom in the world and how it grows. But at this point, after the parable of the yeast, Matthew wants us to realise that teaching about God's kingdom in parables actually fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Look at verses 34 and 35. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. When verse 34 says he did not say anything to them without using a parable... It means that parables were an essential part of his teaching ministry. It doesn't mean that he never said anything else. But that parables were an essential part of what Jesus taught. 
Now remember what a parable is. It's an utterance which needs thought and perception to get the meaning. Those who want to understand them are those who think about what Jesus is saying. And we saw last time that Jesus spoke in this way to reveal God's kingdom and to conceal God's kingdom from some. And here we are told that Jesus spoke in this way to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. And the Old Testament quote that is given here in Matthew is from Psalm chapter 72 and verse 2. Psalm 72 and verse 2. And this is a psalm where a man called Asaph speaks in parables. And the parable of Psalm 72 is one long story. And it's the story of Israel's history. So I'm not going to read you the the psalm. It's a long one, but it's worth uh, reading at home to, to understand that. But it's the long story of the history of, God, of God's uh, salvation plan amongst his people. That's what Psalm 72 is all about. Starting in the Exodus where he saves them uh, from Egypt and then following on through. Asaph's parable of Israel's history shows God's salvation plan. The parables Jesus speaks also show God's salvation plan. They show what the kingdom of heaven is like, how God brings people into it and how he rules over it. And so Jesus, like Asaph, speaks in parables, speaks things that were hidden since the creation of the world, things that pertain to the salvation plan that God has for his people. And in verse 36, the crowd are gone and the disciples want to find out more about these hidden things. The disciples want to know more about God's salvation plan. And so they ask for an explanation of the parable of the weeds. And when Jesus speaks in parables, it's so that we can understand his salvation plan. But we need to think them through. And so it's a good principle, by the way, when you're reading scripture, if you don't understand something, don't just close your Bible and say, oh, I just don't get it, what's the point? No, let's study it out. Let's pray over it. Let's ask each other how these things work and what they all mean. That's what is going on with the disciples. We don't quite understand this, Jesus. Help us to understand. And Jesus, in his kindness, tells them about the parable of the weeds. Well, we've looked at the parable of the weeds already. God's kingdom is in a mixed world. But when Jesus explains the parable, his focus is very much about the harvest time. Jesus tells his disciples, God's king will judge the mixed world. So let's look at verses 34 to 43. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of our age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the burning furnace, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, Whoever has ears, let them hear. 
So first of all, Jesus explains the actors and then he explains the actions. So the actors are the son of man, Jesus. He sows the seed. The field is the world. And the good seed is the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of Satan, who is the enemy. And the harvest is at the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. So Jesus explains who all these actors are. And then he goes on to explain the action. And notice how the action here is focused on the harvest time. The end of the age refers to the time when Jesus returns. That's what the end of the age is, when Jesus comes back. And at that point, the people who are not part of God's kingdom are weeded out of it. Notice how the the field is the world at the beginning of the parable. But here, it's described as God's kingdom is what's being weeded, not the world. Do you notice that? In the parable, it's the world but they're being weeded out of the kingdom. Now, what's going on there? Well, this is because when Jesus returns, everything becomes his kingdom. Uh, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 5 explains that. This is what it says. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So at the end of the age, when Jesus returns, the kingdoms of this world will become his, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And at that time, the weeds are going to be weeded out. So there will be no world kingdom after Jesus returns. His kingdom takes over all, and he will take out those who are not part of it. And those who are not part of it are those who will ruin it because of their sin. And he says everything that causes sin and all who do evil, all who will ruin it, are weeded out. And they'll be cast into what is a description in verse 42 of hell. That's what happens to the weeds. Uh, Again, we we looked at hell last week. And you can uh, listen to that again for more of a description of what Jesus means here when he says weeping and gnashing of teeth and so on and so forth. Often what we will see as we look at Jesus' parables is that they are very sobering. He talks much of hell as the consequence of rejecting him. Jesus is coming and he will judge all people and those who have not been made righteous by Jesus paying their penalty for sin will perish for eternity. But what of those who are righteous? What does he say about them? We'll look at verse 43. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So we have to find what what does righteous mean here. It does not mean uh, those who have behaved themselves, uh, those who have done enough good things to to earn a place in God's kingdom. Um, No, we are all weeds in the uh, words of the parable, until Jesus dies for our sin and we accept that sacrifice and are forgiven of our sin and we are made right with God. Um, That's that's what righteous means. Those who are made righteous uh, by Christ being sacrificed for them. So those who are righteous, those who are God's people, those who are wheat, 
They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. What, what does it mean uh, to shine like the sun? Uh, well, John Calvin actually has a lovely quote uh, about this verse. He says, The children of God, who now lie sunk in foulness, or are hidden and worthless, or even are covered with reproaches, will then shine truly and clearly as in a bright and cloudless sky. You know, many Christians in this world, in fact, probably all Christians in this world, you could say, are looked at by the world as something worthless, something silly. We suffer reproach. But then, on that day, things will be very different. I think this also speaks of holiness, that on that day we will be without sin, and in that sense we will shine brightly as lights in God's world. But we are currently living in that waiting period between the ascension of Jesus and his return. And these parables teach us what to expect in between this time. We will always live in a world where there are God's enemies. We will always be part of a kingdom that is growing beyond what we might expect. But Jesus reminds us too of the end. Our king is coming and our king will reign forever. And the question to end with is this. Which kingdom are you part of? I want to encourage you, in fact to urge you, to think about how you live your life. Are you living it for the king of the only kingdom that's really going to stand in the end? Or are you living it for the kingdom of this world that is going to perish? And if you want to find out more about how to be part of the kingdom of heaven, well then come and speak to us and we would love to share more with you about how to be part of that kingdom that will last forever. And let's spend this Christmas season telling other people about this message of the kingdom. That at the end of the age, there will be much more wheat gathered at the harvest time. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Well, before we come to the Lord's table and we remember what Jesus has done to enable us to be part of his kingdom, uh, we're going to, uh, to sing and we're going to respond to what these parables have been teaching us by singing here the call of the kingdom. So let's stand and let's sing together.